Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6. And I, I want to talk to you. Um, I purposely didn't publish my notes this week because I have no idea really what, what I'm going to say specifically. And uh, I think the notes would potentially confuse you. What I want you to understand is what I'm going to say, the things that I want to press upon you, are a burden that I've been wrestling with for um, quite a long time. Uh, Heavy on me, very heavy. What I'm going to say, I want you to understand, is not directed toward any person at all. So if you walk away thinking that I had you in mind, I didn't. But it's very heavy on my mind. Just this last week or so, I watched yet another person walk away from the Christian faith and apostatize. And I watch it happening and happening and happening over and over. I'm watching that ever-growing divide within the church in America as to what is true and what is proper. If you were to put it a different way, it's really what are the non-negotiables of the Christian faith? And I would say that right now everything just seems to be up for negotiation. And so what my sermon is attempting to do is to simply unburden my conscience before you and our Lord. It's not an attempt... To, to lash out. It's not trying to point any fingers at any person. It's just simply, I need to unburden my conscience. Beloved, I, I read, and I read a lot. I read very far, and I read very wide. But the one thing that I spend much of my time doing is reading really bad theology. Because that's what keeps flowing into the churches. And I see that theology, that bad theology, work its way into people's lives and usually unintentionally take root. It's not like people are picking up these books or listening to this concept and and saying, oh, this is bad theology. I think I'll put it in my life. It's often and usually unintentional. So let me quickly just tell you what theology is, just in case you're not sure of even those types of terms. At the simplest, theology is the study of God, but that's too simple. When I speak of theology, I mean it this way. Theology is practically speaking 
the arranging of all things in their proper place and purpose under the lordship of our creator God. So it's learning to think and understand and then act in a way that is proper under our Lord's lordship. It is the what and the why of everything. So bad theology simply means that we have a wrong understanding of something in relation to God. And good theology means that we have we rightly understand something. But here's where it gets a little strange, is that you can have a bad theology and do the right thing. And you can have a good theology and end up doing the bad thing. Because there's, in our mind, and it's, it's something that's just part of the American culture now, there's a disconnect between what we say we believe and what we do. And so I've met many a person where I can look at them and say, I, I approve because the Bible approves of what you're doing or not doing, but I do not approve at how you got there. How you got there was wrong. And that matters as well. But then I'll much more frustrated, it's much more frustrating for me as a pastor when I see somebody who should know better, and yet they're in the cul-de-sac of folly, wondering why they're in this cul-de-sac of folly, because they've chosen to not do what they say they believe. Now, when you talk to new Christians, they tend to have no theology, or a very limited theology, right? Or a very poor theology. They don't know. They, they, they've only just begun to grow as a Christian, and they're still putting all kinds of things together. And so you expect that of them. But then you'll have the one who has been a Christian for quite a long time, and you'll look at them, and you'll realize that they know they know. I, I can sit with them, and, and you'll actually see it in their eyes as I start to talk about some basic theological ideas, and, and they're like, uh-huh, I know, I know. And, and you're looking at them, and you're, you're thinking, well, at least I am, yeah, I don't think you do know. Somehow, you in your mind have arranged that because you could pass a theology exam of some level, that therefore that correlates into maturity when it doesn't mean anything. And so then your life is, is, is one train wreck after another, and you scratch your head, why and what for? Or you're suffering, and you have no idea how to endure that suffering in a way that honors the Lord. Or you're enjoying great blessing and, and good things, at least from American mindset, and, and again, you don't know what to do with it. And so you begin to live and arrange yourself in a way that's far more in accordance to this fallen age than one that is under the lordship of Christ. What I oftentimes find, though, is that older Christians do have a decent theology. What they lack is conviction. They lack the conviction to just do what they know they ought to do. So I want to revisit this passage as my jumping off point because I tried to do it last time and I don't think I did it sufficiently. 
In Acts chapter 6, I just want to draw your attention to uh, a few verses. In verse 2, if you were, I can't remember if I told you to underline these things last time I preached, but it, it says that the 12, meaning the apostles, the leaders of the church, summon the congregation of disciples and says, it's not desirable, it's not fitting or proper or right for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now, we'll talk about why quickly, but, but just underlying that, it's not desirable to neglect the word of God. Then in verse 4, we, the same people talking, the apostles, we will devote, note that word devote, and you should underline from devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And then verse 7, and the word of God kept spreading. That's what you should underline. So we cannot neglect the word of God. We must devote ourselves to prayer and the word of God. And the word of God continued to spread. Now the problem arose that the people, some of the people were not being fed, the widows, very needy, specifically Greek-speaking widows. And they were being ostracized or shunted off to the edge. And so a problem came that could have split the whole brand new baby church wide open. And they did what they would instinctively do. They come to the apostles and say, fix it. And the apostles immediately said no. And so we we find two things happening here. We see that the apostles already know what's not going to happen. And then, as a result of that, they know what will happen instead. Basic decision-making. The problem is stuck in their face, and they immediately know, well, this is not going to happen, and therefore this must happen. What's not going to happen is we're not serving those tables. Because if we deal with this problem ourselves, we cannot do what we're supposed to do, which is the ministry of the word of God. That's not happening. Therefore, somebody else needs to do it, and we will define for you what that will look like. And the result is the word of God continues to spread, which is all that really matters. So notice what's not pressing on the apostles in this passage. It's not works of mercy. It's not food pantries. It's not a homeless ministry. It's not some sort of a healing conference. It's not the exercising of demons. All of those kinds of things were happening. They were doing healings. They were exercising demons. I mean, a lot of exciting stuff was happening, but that was not what they cared about. All of those are side issues. And they never stopped being a side issue for the apostles. For them, the issue was a ministry of the word of God. The call or the command of Jesus Christ was and still to this day is to be a word-based work for all of you. This is not just upon the pastor It is upon all of us that our life is to always, first and foremost, be word-based, the Bible. One where the Bible is taught, read, explained, preached, and therefore anything that diverts us from that, anything, must either be rejected or reoriented 
to its proper place. And that's what happened here in Acts 6. The people instinctively go to their leaders, which is normal and right, and they want the leaders to do something. And the leaders say, no, we can't do it. You must do it. But what's interesting is the moment that they said, you must do it, then the word of God then kicks in again for the apostles, and they now set up parameters by which the people must operate. They don't say, hey, you do whatever you want. We don't care. We're too busy preaching. It was They still care for these people. And so they said, we will not do that. We, it's not proper. But you will, and this is how you're going to do it. Seven men full of wisdom, and full of the Spirit. You pick them, but they have to qualify in that way. You bring them to us, and we'll go from there. Now, that's not limited to the apostles. The Bible is, and this is my burden for you, my, the Bible must be that framework from which a Christian lives and acts. And so home, family, work, church, society, finances, Speech and anything else must flow from that biblical foundation. Here's my alternative title to the sermon. The sermon title is Non-Negotiables, a Pastoral Plea. The first title I came up with was Here I Stand. All based off of an event that happened back in 1521. 1521. A man named Martin Luther stood alone on charges before the full power of the Roman Catholic Church of that time. But let's understand how he got there. He was a priest who, through the reading of the Bible, came face to face with the problem that he could not resolve. How can God, God's righteousness be good if all it does is reveal to me my sin? And so he threw himself into a study of the Bible as he labored to understand how to resolve the absolute perfections of God in righteousness with the fact that regardless of the religious efforts he performed, he would never be able to pay for his sins. And so at the core of it was a recognition that if God was infinitely holy and righteous, then even the smallest of sin requires eternal punishment. How can anyone remember every single sin? How? How can they know every sin so they can confess it to the priest and then go and do good works of penance to pay for it? And the answer is you can't. Instead of just ignoring that harsh reality as so many of his fellow priests did, Luther labored harder and harder to deal with a life that was irretrievably stained by his sin. Add to that his observations of of the many corruptions and open ungodliness that existed in the church at that time, and all of that was being played out before his very eyes on a daily basis, and that trouble became even greater. For the church stated that salvation and forgiveness of sin is only found within the Roman Catholic Church. And it remains that, that way to this day. How then did he find hope? 
And, and how did he find an answer? Well, it wasn't through meditation. It wasn't through ex- exercise or diet change or a much-needed vacation. It certainly wasn't through positive affirmations or anything else that the American would probably try. It was the reading of the Bible, the Word of God. And in it, he found that we are actually, in fact, saved by Jesus Christ because he took our place in punishment and the payment for sin. He is our substitute. And that through his resurrection, life and forgiveness was found. And for any who simply rested their hope in Jesus alone as Lord and Savior, that God covers that poor sinner with the pure, perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That it's not your job to earn your way into God's favor, but that God in his grace gives you the righteousness that covers you that you could never do on your own. And so that when God looks upon you, the poor sinner, what he sees is the righteousness of his son. Now this led to many things that we won't get into. But suffice it to say that as Luther began to push and to question the status quo of the church, many, many feathers were ruffled in some very high places. And so in 1521, he ends up standing before the mighty power of the Roman Catholic Church that literally held his life in their hands. And during this time of testing and questioning, he somehow remained unmoved from what the Bible and only the Bible declared. And so in the end of it all, he uttered these words. Here I stand. I can do no other, so help me God. Amen. And he was excommunicated. People expected him to be executed, but he was excommunicated due to political issues. The Roman Catholic Church removed him, but he was able to escape the death. And along with the support of the German people, he labored to bring them something utterly precious. It wasn't a cool new teaching. It wasn't a special idea. The precious gift that he brought them was the word of God. And perhaps the greatest of his labors was the translating of the Bible into the German language so that finally just the people could read it for themselves. Beloved, that's what a non-negotiable life looks like. The ability to stand unmoved even when you're trembling with fear. Now that might only happen once in your life. Or you might be one of those people that it strikes many times. That's not in our hands to control. I can't control what will come your way. You can't control it. It astounds me how often we fret over what might come our way instead of just entrusting that to our Lord who is kind and gracious and sovereign and just be found faithful. What we can do is prepare for it. But then that asks, what kind of non-negotiables? What are the non-negotiables a Christian ought to have? And that's the challenge for anyone who calls themselves a Christian. 
What is not open for negotiation in your life? What is it? What is so established in your heart that as an absolute, you will not budge from it? It's an absolute in your life. I will not budge. Here I stand. I can do no other. And that's what I was seeking to do last time I preached in Acts 6, that behind all of this was this idea that there are certain non-negotiables that are established, and they become the guidepost as we walk through life. As challenges, as trials wash over you, what are the non-negotiables that guide you? It's too common for people to be reactive rather than proactive. Too many who walk through their days in this very passive manner, sort of receiving whatever comes with no idea of how to respond until it's there. How often do we say the words, well, we'll cross that bridge when we get there, right? But we never prepare ourselves to cross the bridge. It's one thing to know that when it gets here, we'll deal with it. But are you preparing yourself so that when it's there, You're ready. And this was what was so impressive with the apostles in this passage. They're they're confronted with the serious issue that could split the church, but they didn't need to go pray about it. They didn't need to go seek the mind of the Lord. They didn't need to do a survey or anything else. No committee to discuss options. They knew what to do. The moment it was given to them, they knew what to do. Why? Because they already had their non-negotiables. We will not stop what we're commanded by the Lord to do. We must be preaching the word of God. And if that's a non-negotiable, then somebody else has to do it. And that's what they did. So I want to walk through some biblically derived convictions. No idea how this will come out. I know what in my mind I want it to be, but we'll see. Just walk through some biblically derived convictions with you and show you the why and how of developing them to the level that they then help you stay faithful. How they help you in your walk, in your life as a Christian. So let me pause for a moment and speak to the one, ones here who may not be Christians. If you're not a Christian, if you've been invited here, you're visiting, whatever, let me speak to you. Because as I go through this sermon, I want to be very clear what a Christian's hope and joy is. You may be hearing this and thinking, oh no, some more things to do. Understand I am speaking to Christians in this sermon. But for a moment, I'm speaking to the non-Christian. Now, you can learn a lot about a softball team by how it plays and watching its practices. You can watch the players. You can talk to the players. You learn standards and expectations and rules. You see what they work hardest on and what is less important in the team's mind. You begin to figure out the equipment, the personal preferences of the players. But as you do that, the one thing you never learn is how to be on the team. 
And so you can become an expert about softball without ever joining the softball team. Well, in a similar way, you can watch people who are Christians live life. You can see what their standards are, how their expectations function, what kind of rules they follow. You can show up, you can talk to them, interact with them. Individual Christians can tell you their perspective on this or that. You can even go to the church where they all gather to worship, but none of that makes you a Christian. Many ways I can do this, but for the time of uh, sake of time, John 14, verse 15, in the New Testament, Testament, Jesus says something very simple. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, there are two ways that people read this, but only one of them is correct. A common way to see this is that by obeying Jesus, you then love him. And so the obedience, the doing the good things, the right things, is the means to enter into love. But that's contrary to everything the Bible teaches. The second is actually proper And that is that because you love Jesus, you obey him. The mark of loving Jesus is obedience. The fruit of loving Jesus is obedience. That's very different because it puts that love and that relationship before the obedience. So what is a Christian? A Christian is simply one who has their hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Another way of saying it is, a Christian is one who truly loves Jesus Christ. The Bible calls this becoming a disciple. That word doesn't maybe make much sense to you, but it simply means to become a follower. It means that you literally will abandon all of your other things and now submit yourself to that person. If you became a disciple of some philosopher or teacher or rabbi in that day, you were not there only once a week to do it if you felt like it, but if you got tickets to a game, you were over there because they're tickets. You were there because you were his disciple. And he would have nothing to do with you if you only wanted it on your terms. Very strong. It's not a, don't take that as a negative connotation, but it's an all or nothing situation. And as you learn to follow, and hear specifically Jesus Christ, that when you learn to have, I have my hope and trust in Jesus, what Jesus did on that cross, what Jesus did in his resurrection, who he is, as your trust grows and you begin to follow him, what happens is obedience is a natural result. But that obedience is not what brings you forgiveness of sin. And I want you to make sure you hear this correctly. This sermon is, again, directed to people here who are saying, I hope and trust in Jesus alone who love Jesus, who follow him. And because they're already trusting in him for their salvation, 
they are called to obey. So if you are not a Christian or you're not sure, I would ask you to understand that, that, that the essence of the Christian faith is bound up in the person of Jesus, and you enter into that saving relationship where you and your sin and everything else is forgiven, not because of your efforts, but because you are trusting yourself in what Christ did on your behalf, that he took your guilt, he took your sin, and the punishment, which is death, and he took it upon himself. And when he went to the cross, he paid what you could never pay. And as you place your trust in that, the first thing you do is rise up and follow. So with that in mind, keep in mind that I am speaking to the Christian here. Go to Titus chapter 1. We'll talk about my very first conviction. Biblical convictions, Titus 1.9, are Actually, just turn there first before I start telling you this. I I think this is a clever sentence, which means it's probably not. Titus 1.9. Biblical convictions are biblical convictions because they arise from the Bible. Biblical convictions are biblical convictions because they arise from the Bible. It's that simple. There's nothing hard about this. In Titus 1.9, though, Paul is writing to this young man who's been sent to the island of Crete because it's messed up. The church is messed up. And now he has just been listing out the requirements for those who are going to be in leadership, elders, pastors, however you want to call them. Don't worry about it. They are being listed above in those verses. This is what they must be. And one of the things that they must be is holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. Why? For what purpose? So that he may be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Now, this is all about pastors and leaders, that pastors must be unbendingly committed to the word of God with no apologies ever as he is committed or holding fast, what he will produce is sound doctrine. But the garbage that we see produced by so many so-called preachers and pastors today is garbage doctrine. It could never be called sound doctrine. It's popular doctrine. It's much repeated doctrine, but it's not sound doctrine. Instead, it's self-help, therapeutic nonsense. It gives verbal neck massages to a quadriplegic all the while saying that this will make them feel better. For what purpose? Why? Why are we called here, if you're going to be a teacher, a pastor, why are we called to hold fast the word of God? He says, so that we are able to both exhort, which is strongly encourage, that's what I'm trying to do today, and to convict and to rebuke. In other words, godly biblical preaching is always a two-edged sword in the mouth of a pastor. In fact, show me a pastor who is not regularly rebuking unsound teaching that finds its way into the church 
and I will show you an unfaithful shepherd. And the same goes for unbiblical living within the church. Note that I said within the church. It is very popular in the pulpits today and and in the mouths of many, not just pastors, but Christians, to rebuke the unsound teaching of the world, which the whole thing is sick. It's rotten at its very core, and we make it our time to speak against the evils of the age, and yet we are told in the Bible we live in an age of evil. Why should we be shocked over that? But all the while that we denounce it, we overlook what should be rebuked within the church. The pastor's job is to deal with the church. Your job is to deal with the church. Paul rebukes the Corinthian church itself because they were apparently so busy rebuking the culture they lived in, and yet they were entertaining in all sorts of sin within their community. And so dealing with one specific sin of sexual immorality of a very unique sort, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. The task of a pastor and the task of the church is to always be seeking to come under sound doctrine. And when you come under that sound doctrine, you will find yourself at times rebuked or encouraged. Every man who aspires to be a true pastor will face a moment at least once. Listen, to, please hear me on this. Every pastor, pray for your pastors. Because every pastor who wants to be a true pastor will face at least once in their life and likely many times a time where they're stepping into the pulpit and they have to make a decision. Do they apologize for the biblical passage they're going to preach from? Do they soften the passage? Or will they just simply preach the passage and let the chips fall where they may? And if you don't think it doesn't happen, then you don't understand the nature of man. That we're weak, we're sinners, and we face the same temptations that every other person in this room deals with. But beloved, until that man faces that moment, he is an untested man. The last thing the church in America needs in this hour are a bunch of people claiming to be shepherds who are more like the people described in Titus chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Just look there. Actually, I meant 10 through 16 of chapter 1. And of course, silence your phones. Why does, he, why does Paul tell him in verse 9, so that he is able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict? For this reason, verse 10, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, meaning Jewish, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families. 
teaching things they should not teach. Why? For the sake of sordid gain. One of them, a one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this cause, reprove them severely. Why? For what purpose? So that they may be what? Sound in the faith. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the, those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but their deeds, they deny him. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for every good deed. That's what's going on today. Now in Ecclesiastes, we see another biblical conviction. Ecclesiastes, if you don't know where these books are, don't worry about it. Just listen. But in Ecclesiastes, back in the Old Testament, in chapter 3, verse 8, it's a passage I read almost always for uh, funerals. My point here is biblical convictions also will help us discern what time it is. Biblical convictions will help us discern what time it is. This is a famous passage. You hear it all the time. I think the Beatles sang a song where they corrupted it mightily. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under the heaven, or under heaven, a time to give birth, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones, and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, and a time to shun embracing, a time to search, and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart, and a time to sew together, a time to be silent, a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. There's a time for everything, but do you know what time it is? How often do you ask yourself what time it is? It's very easy for us, beloved, as people to react, and as a result, we end up doing something that wasn't appropriate. All of you, if you're like me, you look backwards in your life and you have regrets. Then the longer you live, the more regrets. The ones that you wish you would have done, the ones where you realize I should have and could have and and ought to have, but I didn't because I was this or I was that or I wasn't prepared. Wisdom, though, and when I talk about wisdom, I never use it other than biblical wisdom is designed to help us discern. Biblical wisdom is not some weird thing out there. It is knowing the word of God so well that you now can use it skillfully. So, quick example. I'm I'm getting my old house ready to sell, and I asked my son-in-law to come and do some work for me. And the reason was, 
all of the things I asked him to do, I knew I could do. It was things like trimming this and doing that, but I knew he could do better. And he just annoyed me no end while I was there working and he was doing his thing because he does things with a circular saw that no one should be able to do. He's just casual with it and his cuts are always straight and they're always right and they're always perfect. And it's annoying. He never has to go back to Menards to buy more wood. It always works. He's skillful. He's wise with that. That's all biblical wisdom is. It's that you've actually gotten to a point where you're skillful with your word. Wisdom helps us discern then. It's that ability to speak into a subject in a way that is actually helpful. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Proverbs 25.11. I remember just as an officer, my partner and I had pulled over a car of gang members, and we were in the process of questioning them and just find out why, what they were doing. And we had it under control. We actually had somewhat of a rapport going on. This, this type of gang really functioned high on respect. And if you showed them the respect, they'd show you respect. And even though you were ready to maybe hook them up and take them in, you could talk to each other. And we, we had that working for us. When all of a sudden, another police car comes roaring up, unrequested, and this lady gets out, and she was part of the gang unit, and she decided she was going to take over our stop, and she jumps right into the face of these bangers and starts to mouth off with them. <laughs> Both like, what just happened here? I, I actually grabbed her and pulled her backwards, and I said, go away. You're not welcome here. You're not helping. Too late, we end up in a fight. We end up in a fight because a foolish word was spoken when a wise word was working. We've all been there, right? That unhelpful comment that we just want to say, we, ha- we got to say it. We just feel compelled. Biblical wisdom tells you what's right to say for the right time. What time is it that we live in, beloved? Is it a time to laugh? Or is it a time to mourn? Is it a time to plant or is it a time to uproot? I would argue that it's a time to mourn, to uproot, to tear down, to throw away, and it's most definitely a time to speak. But I fear that when I say these things, it's heard with ears of social, with uh, with uh, so, uh, ears that are thinking in the social realm or the civic activity, political efforts. But what I mean by that is, I speak with regard to the church at large. Within the church, right now, every possible idea, belief, practice imaginable is practiced. Simply. Put, biblical ideas are thought to be radical. Biblical ideas are thought to be fringe today. Biblical ideas are dangerous. 
And a lot of that comes because so many teachers are teaching a corrupted application of theology. But it also comes because too many who claim Christ only really worship themselves. Their choices in life and church are based upon what they want or like. It's not a biblical conviction. So when was it that you last examined the times you live in? What are the storm clouds that you see building on the horizon? I certainly see them. What are the protections and changes that you're making in light of the times? And I'm not talking about your social, civic issues. I'm talking about your spiritual things. What are the things that you see are coming that will test you to the very core? And are you ready? Are you building those things? My heart desires that when the raging storm finally rushes in, that it will find you doing what is right before the eyes of the Lord so that you stand fast. In Matthew 23, we have the next conviction. Matthew 23. Biblical convictions help protect against swallowing the camel and straining the gnat. Matthew 23, verse 23 and 24, these are a series of woes. The word woe doesn't mean a lot to us, but it's, it's the worst kind of um, curse you can have in the Bible. When you say woe, there's nothing good that comes from that. It is to be, all it means is that you are now on the precipice of being completely undone and it's a curse that should strike fear. And that's what Jesus is doing. And he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, the lawyers and the religious leaders, hypocrites. Why? Because you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You set aside one out of every 10 seeds of those and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, which are justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. And then he says this, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Now it's very easy as a Christian for you to react. And as a result, you do something you don't like. But it's also very simple for you to happily swallow a camel all the while, you're carefully picking out the gnats. What are the camels? I, I just would ask you, what are the camels perhaps you're swallowing? What are the camels that you swallow as you watch certain shows, listen to certain things, take in certain teachers? I get asked all the time, you listen to Joe Rogan? I don't. It's not a a knock against Joe Rogan. I just don't. Why? What what is he going to ultimately give me? What will he give you that will change one thing in your life? I'm going to just tell you nothing. He'll get you stirred up. He'll get you angry. He'll get you intrigued. He'll tell you all about how you can take DMT to get to an altered state so that you can maybe get in touch with stuff. You will be learning everything but the Word of God. 
Do you devote your time to him? And then you look at somebody and say, I don't have time. I'm busy. I'm this. I'm that. What do you devote yourself to? What are the camels that you're happily putting on your plate and swallowing them whole, all the while you're talking about this gnat and that gnat? Again, don't take this as a rebuke. I'm trying to stir you up to think. Let me ask you this question. How often in your life do you find that you're the odd man out? The odd man out. Where your choices in life and how you talk to your wife or your husband, how you view your children, how you interact with the governing authorities, how you function with your non-Christian neighbor, how all of those things. How often are you the odd man out because your choices are so different from them that you have this distinct separation between you and them? Here's what a fellow pastor graduated from my seminary. I don't know him personally, but we're friends on Facebook, whatever that means. But he said it this way. Conservatives who reject Jesus Christ are still enemies of God. God may use them for some cultural benefit, but they still share far more in common with mockers and scoffers than true believers. The gospel is still our highest priority. Do you believe that? Don't nod. Just do you believe that? I listened to a six-minute video last night of a well-known pastor. In fact, so well-known that many of you probably have at least one of his books on a shelf where he was asked several times and in several different ways from a man, an unbeliever, in this interview, what do you say to a Muslim, a Sikh, or a Hindu would you say that they are going to go to hell? And this well-known, well-educated pastor for six minutes could not answer it. It was, it was easy. Yes, I do. Because the Bible says so. Unless that man or woman and I speak to you in this room, unless that man or woman repent and turn to Christ alone for their salvation, they will be under his eternal wrath for all eternity. Yes. Couldn't do it. So busy trying to be part of the public square, they can't just speak basic biblical truth. And you wonder why the church in America is in the state it's in. This man was scrupulous in so many things, and yet he swallowed a massive camel right there. What about you, though? I can tell you that it's not for lack of opportunity for most. Is it possible that because you're so busy counting your dill and your cumin that the pre- that the parade of people who walk by you end up in hell without ever a word from you? What are the seeds that you're counting 
while you swallow your camel. In Ephesians 4, I'm clearly not going to finish this, so I'm picking and choosing here. In Ephesians 4, we have another biblical conviction. Chapter 4, verses 11 through 15 Paul writes, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, that's the believers, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, which is the church. How long will that be happening until we all attain to the unity of the faith or the unity of doctrine and and biblical truth and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, not an individual man, but as a body, as a corporate body of the church, a mature man to the measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is ahead, even Christ. Biblical convictions protect against the constant blowing of the winds of doctrine. Think about the many teachings that are floating around right now. Think about maybe the current teaching that you heard and you're intrigued by and is going on in your own mind. Just think about over the last several years what we've seen. We've seen the garbage produced by the purpose-driven church. We saw the blasphemy of the shack. People are still buying by the ton. A horrendous, blasphemous book called, the, called Jesus Calling. We have the contemplative prayer movement, which is nothing more than a vague, Christian-y-sounding Hinduism. We have New Age thinking, such as crystals. And, of course, you have the prayer of Jabez. All of these have flowed through the church at some time or another. And there'll be more coming. And what's sad is how many don't prepare themselves for this by having a sound doctrine. Right now, beloved, there is almost no doctrine considered untouchable in the American church. Various views of the beginnings of the universe and mankind are almost beyond number. But what stands out is that they all almost never actually deal with the biblical text. What does it say? Issues related to the Trinity or the relationship between the divine nature and the human nature of of Christ are now determined to be the result of white colonialism. Sin is now defined as almost anything but sin. The addict or the drunk has a disease. The violent looter is merely expressing his right to take what was stolen from his forebearers. To wear a mask or not to wear a mask is to love your neighbor. To argue for reparations, well, that's a gospel issue. 
Just about every position under the sun regarding human relationships are now up for grabs within the larger church. Pedophilia? Well, we'll just try to keep that under control. Homosexuality? Well, God wants us to be authentic to ourselves. Transgender? Well, God is a God of truth. And so he wants you and I to reveal who we truly are. Adultery? No biggie. We can always make a biblical case for multiple wives or husbands. In fact, one of the most common questions I get from parents as a pastor is that as their children get older, they end up developing friends who are claiming to be a homosexual or transgender at school. And they're very nice people, and they're pleasant, and, and they, they're their friend. And so they ask their mom and dad this question in some way or another, is God really going to send them to hell? And the parent comes to me to ask me, well, what should I say? Now let me add one more. Yes. And you'll go with them unless you repent. It is the grasping that all of us, apart from Jesus Christ, have only one thing, and that is eternity in hell. And the people are literally hurling off the cliff into eternity without a word. Biblical convictions... This will be my last one. Biblical convictions protect by having true categories to understand life then. When you develop biblical convictions, you now can understand what we would call categories in life. So you can now look at people and solutions through a biblical lens. A solid view of sin, a solid view of man, and a solid view of God and redemption, salvation, eliminates so many things that you and I look to to give us answers. So I'm just going to, I pick three things and I'm just going to rant briefly on them. That's all it is. It's a rant only because I've had to read books and I'm tired of reading them. I don't even have a verse for this biblical conviction because it's just what the Bible says. Just write Bible. There are so many personality tests and tools that are picked up and used by Christians without ever considering the theology behind them. And the goal of these tools is to know yourself or to know your spouse. I just finished up a book last night, thankfully, uh, called A Book Called You, written by a prominent megachurch pastor all about the Enneagram. While I'm reading that, Grayson had the sheer pleasure of reading a different book by another Christian author on the Enneagram, and he and I ranted via text. Now, all of these tests and methods are designed to help you see your strengths and weaknesses, how you interact with people, and to do it better. And so the first one that I I will only just mention, but because of time, is is the ever-famous love languages. What's your love language? You know, it really helped me in my marriage once I discovered what my love language was, and, and now I can love my spouse better because her love language is this, and so now we're all happier. No, you're not. You're still rotten sinners. 
in the constant need of grace of God in your life as you arrange yourselves not under your love language, but the authority of the Word of God. That's what you need. Sorry. All they do is offer simple explanations and categories. In fact, Grace and I are contemplating coming up with our own. What was a decagram? Decagram, 10 different categories for you to arrange yourself under to find out how you interact with one another. Why not? Make the bucks. Everyone else is making the bucks. And we can just invent whatever we want. And you know what? We'll use the broad language, and then we can all find ourselves, isn't this great? We just need some graphics, and that man can do graphics. So they take a person, they tuck them into some type or category, and then they allow whatever book or speaker that they want to submit themselves under to tell you how to deal with it. So let's just talk briefly about the Enneagram, since that's all the rage right now. Again, you will hear people tell you that it helps them. It really helps them to know themselves. You'll hear Christians say that it helps them also to know Jesus somehow better. Go figure. But what they don't want to accept is that the roots of Enneagram is wrapped up in the occult, that the man who actually brought it to the Western world was a mystic in the fullest sense of that word, that he he claimed a higher level of divine insight that was beyond ordinary knowledge. That's called the ancient heresy of Gnosticism that he was capable of direct communication with the divine spirit. And then from that teaching, two other men, I can't even pronounce their names, then developed it into the popular nine types, which is where the name Enneagram comes from. All based upon the number nine, which is a major and important number within the occult world of which they belonged. Then a major proponent of this named Richard Rohr, whose book, The Enneagram, A Christian Perspective, is anything, but it's anything but Christian, he teaches in his own theology, that sin is not an issue for humanity, that God, uh, that Jesus didn't die for sin, that humanity is not separated in any way from God, that most evil, but most evil is that he says that Jesus was not always Christ. He and the universal Christ became one at some point. And yet pastor after pastor promotes him in their churches. All of this, beloved, is an alternate source of understanding you and yourself and and others. Its foundations are utterly devoid of the Scripture. No amount of Bible verses appended to a sentence changes that. And if if it's something that's gotten its grips into you, you need to rip it out. It will never factor in the absolute dominating power of sin. It can't. What you won't find in these is the reality of sin, rebellion, grace, forgiveness, the utter absolute need to depend on Jesus Christ or the strength of the Spirit. And so a number two is a helper. So what? 
can't help you learn to do what's truly helpful or even know if it's helpful. Helping is never an end in itself. It's not even a Christian concept. Helping is only biblical when it's biblical. Have you ever had a kid try to help you? Well, that's us. Oh, I'm a helper. I'm a number two. You're not helping. How about the Myers-Briggs? Just another one that's older and more pop, it's still very popular. The Myers-Briggs type indicator. It was developed, if you didn't know, by, out of Carl Jung's theory of psychological types. What you may not know is that Jung saw the human psyche as by nature religious, but not Christian. And this religiousness was the focus of how he explored the human psyche. But it is and was not a biblically derived understanding of the soul of mankind, which is what psyche means. Rather, he was influenced by the popular movement known as spiritualism and spirit guides. This is all in his own writings. His life was, in fact, filled with seances and other types of divination and mediums, all of which the Bible declares to be of the highest sort of evil, in other words, an abomination. In fact, he had what was known as a familiar spirit guide. We would call that a demon, and his name was Philemon, or Philemon, depending on how you pronounce it, who he described as the source of his greatest insights about the human soul. And it's out of those demonic visits that he developed the framework upon which Myers-Briggs would then build. That was, came from Catherine Briggs and her daughter Isabel Myers, who found Young's understanding of the psyche to be of immense help in defining their efforts. And so over time, this testing has been used inside and outside of the church to help people understand themselves, and yet it can't. And it won't because it stands outside of the word of God. The entire premise is built upon occultic practices and theology. So why do Christians look to Enneagram and love language and Myers-Briggs as a way to fix their problems? It's because they have no biblical conviction. It's that simple. It's that harsh. They're swept along by anything and everything flowing through the churches by the latest podcast, the latest book, the hottest teacher, and they don't develop convictions. All across the land, you have pulpits, and let me bring us all to a close, where a speaker is telling you how God gave him a message or a vision, and then he proceeds to tell you about it. When you have pulpits teach things supposedly biblical, but you could remove all the Bible verses from it and it would still preach the same, you have a problem. When you are calling on God to be among his people, but you're not opening the scriptures, reading them, teaching them, then there is a problem. Beloved, God is uniquely present among his people whenever the word of God is read and preached. John Lachlan did an excellent sermon last week, and we don't have time to discuss it, but in Colossians, 
he dealt with the idea that the Colossians are strong and stable. But they're strong and stable because they believed in the weak things, the word of God, the gospel. The reason we abandon the word of God for these other things is that the world says those things are powerful and the word of God is foolish. And we, instead of grasping that God works through foolishness to confound the wise, we abandon the foolish of God to take on the wisdom of man. And so we have people doing the Instagram of Get Well Wednesday or whatever, where you see the lady who, who's like, this is Get Well, well Wednesday, the, the, you know, and she walk around with her phone or whatever it is she uses, and she just, and her hair's all undone, and the house is a wreck, and she just wants you all to know, look, things are real here. You know, I don't always have it together, and we just want to all get real, and, and we're just showing how everything is out of control. And somehow, that's supposed to convey something. When in fact, biblically speaking, she needs to put her phone down and go clean the house. And it's sin for her to have that. But we don't think that way. And we we do this, male and female alike. We abandon the roles that God assigns us, and then we wonder why things don't work. Beloved, all behind this is this intense awareness that everything a Christian and a faithful church must be is under attack and under revision. And so as we chart the days and the months ahead, we must do it in the strong convictions of what does the Bible say? Then rightly interpret it, explain the Bible. All of it is to show that we are truly disciples of Jesus because we obey what he says. Listen to what John 8, and then we'll pray. In John 8, 31 and 32, people said they believed in Jesus. Many came to believe in him in verse 30, okay? And the very next thing, Jesus looks at those who believed in him, and he says this, if you continue or remain in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. My charge to you, my burden, is that you and I continue in the word. Let's pray. So, Father, I ask that you would put these things into our hearts, drive them deep into it, cause each of us to consider ourselves before you. What are the non-negotiables? How hard do we seek to order our lives under your mighty hand? What is the message that our lives communicate to those who are not a believer? What is the compelling hope that we show with our words and deeds of an age that is to come that is not of this evil fallen age? Turn all of our hearts that way, Father. Break us down, but also build us up in the most holy gospel that in that we find our salvation, our forgiveness, and our purpose and being in Jesus Christ alone. Help us toward that task through the Spirit in your Son's name. Amen.